Helena in this story is, um, I want to talk about that. The fact that one man could create so many women who are extraordinary creatures is something we have to look at, what he sees. Um, anyway, I want to set Helena next to the clerk's tale, um, 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 Griselda, to look at the contrast because it, it, it helps bring into focus a shift from the Christian Middle Ages to a modern world and a play in which very little is ex ex said explicitly about Christianity, but I believe a faith underlies it. Shakespeare doesn't deal with it explicitly, and that's, I think that's part of his genius. So I wanted to do that, so that's where we're going. Um, we will spend a couple of weeks on All's Well, and then we'll do uh, Merchant of Venice, and we'll end Shakespeare with uh, Anthony Cleopatra. And then, I'm not sure, <clears throat> we probably maybe do Scarlet Letter. Suzanne's been leaning on me to do Scarlet Letter, and, um, and then we'll do Eliot, um, the, the uh, murder of the cathedral, because it takes us back to St. Thomas. And uh, Dostoevsky, the, they've been holding those books for us now for two years. I've been holding my own for <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was some other book that we, I, we got in there, and I can't remember. Oh, maybe Jane Austen's Mansfield Park. I'm not sure. I'm going to ask you guys later, because I, I don't know what your tolerance is anymore. So, But that's roughly what we're doing, okay? Um, one warning, and this is very, very serious. Um, I want everybody to hear this really seriously. I'd forgotten how difficult the language in All's Well is. It's just a really difficult play to read. Um, if you read Tempest, Winter's Tale, the earlier comedies, you, even Hamlet, King Lear, um, Shakespeare's language is never easy. Anyway, but the language in, in All's Well is extremely difficult, and I just want to underscore this. There, I believe there's, this guy, he knows what he's doing. The, the language is particularly difficult in this play. It's called a problem play. Um, Oswell and, and Measure for Measure were written just as Shakespeare entered his dark period. He's written Hamlet. He's going to go on to do Lear and Othello and Macbeth. And, so his vision is deepening, and he's seeing a darkness to things, even in his comedies. So Oswell that ends well and Measure for Measure have a dark side to them. Um, when um, <coughs> Susanna and I were talking with um, Fred and Francis the other day, and, and Fred was commenting on the end. I don't, I don't want to go there right now, but just a, the, the, the way that he described it was in terms of, I hope I'm getting this right, you know, it, it doesn't seem to be a happy ever after ending, um, because in so many of you, Young earlier comedies, certainly in, in uh, Merchant of Venice, the, the ending is full of wonder. A miracle has just taken place. So it's a very difficult play. It's called a dark play. The language is difficult, and I want to throw this idea out, and I want everybody to hear this really seriously. What Shakespeare's dealing with is something that he identifies as a particular quality of the modern world. And one of the differences between the modern world after Machiavelli and Copernicus is people tend to live in their heads. The greater part of the action in this play is an action in thought. It's verbal. That's not an accident. 
they're, they're constant puns and paradoxes and antitheses and oppositions in the language. You can't read it without being puzzled and wondering, what's going on here? That's not an accident. It's a, it's a quality of the action because Shakespeare's aware we've entered a different world. The, the Christian Middle Ages were heroic. There were knights, chivalric knights, men who fought, the, the, the Inquisition, you know, the Crusades. Um, the ideal of the Middle Ages was a courtly knight. We've seen that running through Chaucer. After Copernicus, Copernicus and the scientific worldview, we enter a world of thought and what dominates the action of this story is thought. Exchanges, verbal exchanges, where, you, where the action, the outcome is going to depend on the meaning of things. So don't be surprised at the language. Um, it's difficult. It really is hard. Um, just know that that's part of the action. He's asking us to think about things and see things. Um, that's one. Two is... <clears throat> Just to alert you, I, we're, we, I don't think we'll have time to get into it tonight. Paroles is a major figure. The name means words. That's his identity. He's a man of words. Bertram thinks he's valiant and heroic and steady and faithful. Um, nothing could be farther from the truth. He's a scoundrel. And if you've read the play, you know that Bertram is a scoundrel too. Or on the surface, I mean, part of him. When you read the play, and after the ordeal scene, when Helena cures the king, and he gives her choice for a husband, remember, um, the king's going to bring in four courtiers, and Helena's going to approach him nervous because she's afraid she's going to be rejected. She already knows who she wants to choose. I don't want to go there because I don't want to, don't like taking, th giving things away, but. She approaches that like Portia does the ordeal with the three suitors. She's going to present herself to these men and partly afraid that she's going to be rejected. She's already got her mind on one other person. Okay? Um, but after that scene, pay attention to what happens to Paroles with Lefeu. Because in some sense, Paroles, this, this is a giveaway, Paroles is like an objective image of something in Bertram. He's like a double. The Paroles is a, is, an, is a character in his own right. He, he shows the hypocrisy of the court. He, put, make a, do this. When you read, instead of reading king, lords, read CEO, manager, leader, the guy who's in charge of things. Make, make a contemporary. Except know that a king has more power. When Helena comes out to choose her husband, the king has given her absolute power. Because it's, it's understood, it's assumed that a lord, that the lords, the knights, give their will to the king. So whatever the king asks, they do. So I'm, I won't give it away, but be aware of paroles, particularly in the next scene, given what's going on. Because what she, he, he is so far ahead of Freud. Paroles is an image of something hidden in Bertram, and he's helping us to see it. So the depth of his psychological understanding of human beings is extraordinary. So when the play unfolds, just be aware that Shakespeare's doing a lot with language. He's doing a lot with entrances and exits. Um, Paroles is crucial. 
And of course, pay close attention to Helena. And while you're reading, here's what I would ask. Um, put Portia and Helena next to each other. You know that Portia is, is an extraordinary woman. Um, in Merchant of Venice, Portia puts on a, on, a, on a lawyer's garb of a man and goes to Venice to protect her husband. But we know that um, Bassanio is a good man. He's the only one of the three suitors who said, I, ch I choose the lead. He who, hazards, he who hazards everything he has, choose me. That's an indication that Bassanio was willing to give up everything for her. Are these on, Doc? Yeah. Oh, okay. He was willing to give up everything for her. He's a good man. And she answered by doing the same thing herself. After the ordeal, she says, I give you everything that I have, all her possessions. That's the union. They, they give themselves up for each other. In um, All's Well, Bertram loves, I'm sorry, Helena loves Bertram. Um, on the surface, he seems like a good man. He's a, he's a lord. But he's a scoundrel too. I mean, watch what he does. It's, it's, it's embarrassing to watch what he does. Helen is described as having a third eye. You know that image of the ancient image? of um, The third eye was an, an image of a special wisdom for the person who had it. She's described as having a third eye. Um, she loves Bertram. The, the, what, the way I tend to see her is I, I, you, we, I think we all know of when, women, when all the women in here, were, when you guys were younger, and women were um, friends with other women. Suzanne had five or six roommates when she was going through school. And it's not uncommon for the friends of a woman when that woman gets attracted to a man to say, I don't see what she sees in him. You know, that, that women will look at a woman and say, what does she see in that guy? Um, e either there's something there, or I mean, she's a fool, or there's something there that she sees through love that nobody else does. And in this instance, what's gonna happen with this woman is what she does is gonna make him a better man. In some sense, the courtly romance night that we've been looking at in Chaucer is going to get reversed. Everything that she says reminds us of a courtly night. She loves this man the way the courtly knight, the, the beloved in all of Chaucer's story. It's reversed. She even calls it an idolatrous love. But what she does with that love is going to have an extraordinary outcome. So Shakespeare's taking so much of what was passed on in the Middle Age and bringing it into the modern world and inverting it. So what Helen does is extraordinary. She's just an extraordinary creature. But just no going into it, the language is really, really difficult. That's not an accident. He's showing us something about that world, OK? Those are just cautions. I found it. Where? <laughs> Okay, um, let's start. Any, any prayer requests? It's good to see you all. Good to see you all. Jay, it's good to see you again. 
name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. <coughs> Thank you, Lord, um, again for the gift of our life. Um, gosh. Doc, can you give me the reading? Do you have that? Is that the magnificent? Sorry. I wanted to just call to mind the reading this morning for those of you who were in Mass. Um, Christ is saying of these two towns, um, Tyre and Sidon, that, you know, in the Old Testament, but he's saying, Woe to you in Chorazin, woe to you in Bethsaida. Um, here, let me read it. For if the mighty deeds done in your midst had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have long ago repented. But it would be more tolerable for Ty, Tyre and Sidon at judgment than for you. And as for you, Capernaum, Capernaum is where the um, the bread of life discourse takes on, where Christ says, "I'm the bread of life. Um, um, unless you eat of me, you will, I will have nothing to do with you." Basically, he's saying, "You you need you need the life I'm giving you to overcome the sins in you." They're that grave. Without without my life, you won't be able to see me in heaven. <clears throat> um, we the exalted him. You will go down to the netherworld. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. Whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. It will be more tolerable for Sire and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And as for you, Capernaum, will you... Um, He's, he's saying that he has performed such great deeds there that even Tyron um, and Sidon, who ignored him, rejected him, would have been better off. If you're paying attention in the last couple of weeks, you know that there have been pretty severe warnings on the part of Christ that um, we, we have to take things seriously because if we don't, we're in trouble. So. This constant call for repentance, to, to take Christ seriously, to change our lives. So, a special request, Lord, that all of us here be blessed um, with the um, stronger spirit of humility. We've been reading stories in which the most important thing that goes on, story after story after story, is that the characters learn to deny themselves. They reach a point where they have to put themselves away for the sake of another. Um, help us, each of us, to overcome um, whatever is selfish in us that um, wants things too much um, for ourselves. Um, help us to give ourselves to what you're asking, um, to take what we've received from these works that we're reading into the world with you, make them real. It, it's a multifaceted world. There's, we see the richness of it through these works. The, all the various ways you are at work. Help us to find a strength in that, for whatever it is each one of us is going to do, or is doing, um, 
But let a blessing be upon all of us, please. Um, strengthen in us a spirit of repentance, um, to put ourselves away, to open ourselves to what you're asking. And we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. I, can you take out the Shakespeare and, um, and um, the, the Chaucer? I wanted to do Chaucer... Um, I'm going to do two things with Chaucer. I'm going to read from the Canterbury Tales because this will be the last time you will ever probably ever hear Middle English. <coughs> we're saying goodbye to Chaucer. And I want to read Gentilessa because um, keep this in mind. Here's the, here's the reason. In, can I have your attention, everybody? In um, All's Well That Ends Well, I'll come back to this in a few minutes when we get there. In All's Well That Ends Well, we're in a French um, um, stratified world. It's an aristocratic world, so there are classes. And because Helen's born in an inferior class, she has no claim on Bertram. He, he's, he belongs to a noble class. So one of the things that Shakespeare's dealing with this, in this play, which makes it very different from, say, Merchant of Venice, he's dealing with a, um, a, a, strat a stratified world in which the worth of a person is determined by the class he's born into. So it's assumed that some people are better by virtue of their birth. If they're born into a, um, an aristocratic class, a landed class, they're better than peasants. It's on the basis of that that, that Bertram you refuses to marry, see I'm giving the play away, refuses to marry Helena. Well, I, we're going to get to that. Can't, I'm, you've got to read it. This is an extraordinary scene. <coughs> Chaucer's Gentilessa shows how democratic the Catholic spirit is. <coughs> that we've been called to love one another and that real, remember, the, the term gentilessa, medieval, led to the gentleman, the English notion of a gentleman. So an English notion of a gentleman was well-bred, well-mannered, good, looks out for other. It's like a modern form of the Christian knight. But for Chaucer, in the Middle Ages, gentilessa has no associations with class or an inherited virtues, okay? He's saying that gentilessa is an inherent quality whose roots go back to Adam and finally to Christ, okay? So the very nature of the poem is speaking against everything aristocratic. And, and Chaucer was of the court, okay? He lived in a court life. So <clears throat> I'm going to read those two poems. This is a gentilessa is going to prepare us for uh, All's Well. <clears throat> And the opening of the prologue of Canterbury Tales is a farewell to Chaucer because we'll be saying goodbye to him today. But I want to read this once, once more just so you can hear it. <clears throat> the opening lines to the general prologue. Juan de Raprili with his shoulders, the drach of match has pierced to the rooter, and bathed every vein in switch liqueur of which virtue engendered is the flora. On Zaphyrus eager with his sweet breath, 
in spade cath in every hot and heather, the tundra croppers in the young sun, at in the ram his halga coors irona, and smaller fowlers making melody that sleepeth all the neck with open yea. So pricketh him nature in her courages than longing folk to go on pilgrimages. When spring comes, when April, when showers of April, and the rain comes, and flowers are springing, and birds are singing, new life is coming. It's an appropriate time for a pilgrimage because a pilgrimage is meant to be a renewal, a spiritual renewal of one's faith. Okay? So pricket him nature in his courages than longing folk to go on pilgrimages, and permitted for to seek in strange trondes to fern halwitz kute in sundry landes. And specially from every shiris ender of England to Canterbury they went. The holy blissful martyr for to seek, to seek St. Thomas, that him hath holpen when they what that day would have seeke. Befell it happened on that day, befell that in that season on a day, in soft work at the Talbert as he lay, ready to wander on my pilgrimages to Canterbury with full devout courage. At Nick was come into that hostelry, well nine and twenty in compagnie, of sundry folk by adventure he fale. In Fallowa his ship, and pilgrims were they alle, that toward Canterbury Walden ride. The chambers and the stables were weed, and well we were eased at her besta. And shortly one the sun was to rest, so had he spoken with him each ever, that he was of her fellow a shippe anoon and made foe early for Teresa to take our way there as he yo divisa. For what was going to happen, as you'll find out. <coughs> so that's the that's the opening of. Um, remember, we read Shakespeare with our idiom, our inflections. Um, just so you know, Shakespeare's English was two centuries later. Chaucer's writing in fourteen hundred, Shakespeare's in sixteen. But um, if you were to read Shakespeare in his English. It would be a combination of something like our own spoken English today and Chaucer's. Somewhere between there would be Shakespeare's language. So, and you know how important it is to hear it. But just so you know or can imagine that. Okay. So Chaucer's Gentilessa. Hmm. In the clips that they have with what you just read uh -huh. is a modern English translation. Yeah, I gave you both. You should have. You you should you got it in the book anyway. You don't need it. Don't go there because we're just. You got it in the book. It's just um, the modern English is what we've been reading. Um, this is just Chaucer's Middle English. I wanted you to hear it once before we leave. His poem Gentilessa. Okay. <clears throat> the first book, Father of Gentilessa. What man that claimeth gentil for to be must follow his tracer and all his wits dresser, virtue to serve, and vices for to flee, for unto virtue longeth dignity, and not the reverse, softly dare dini, all were he mitra, crona, or diademe. The first stock, 
no matter how gentle, whatever the gentleness is, um, he must go back to that first stock and um, his lineage and um, serve virtue, flee from vices um, for anybody who, who longs for a genuine dignity and not the reverse. Um, no matter if he has a, a mitre or a crown or a diadem. So it doesn't matter what the person's social standing is, a king, a priest, it doesn't matter. Real gentleness goes back to Adam. Um, and, and so Chaucer is asking us to feel it, to look past appearances, shadows. The first the stoic was full of rich witness, truer of his word, sober, piteous, and free, cleaner of his ghost and loved, busyness against the vice of slaughter in honest day, and but his heir love virtue as did here, he is not gentle, though he richer seema, or he mitra cron for diadem. Um, if he doesn't love real virtue, if he doesn't practice it, no matter how rich he seems, or no matter how much stature he has in his world, even if he has a mitre, a crown, or a diadem, Visa may well be heir to old richessa, but there may no man, as men may well see, bequeatha his heir his virtuous noblesse, that is appropriate unto no degree, but to the fairest father in majesty, that maketh him his heir, that con him queme, alwihi mitra crona or diadema. So, Real graciousness goes back to uh, Adam, and you know from the work that we've done, it would be Adam in the unfallen garden. It's that longing to go back and recover that virtue we once had. And, and obviously, if you think about it, the ultimate source of that was Christ. Um, okay, can you pull out Shakespeare? We're just starting on the poems. It's going to be, of course, on the lyric today. <coughs> Get the Shakespeare. Anybody need one? I don't know. I don't It's the last poem in the Shakespeare thing that we gave you. questions today. Yes, I am. <laughs> Shakespeare's uh, 94. Just a brief background note. <clears throat> Petrarch, this is actually important to know, Petrarch is looked at as the, um, the what's prototype, the 
the one who really signals the beginning of the modern world. He follows Chaucer, I mean Dante, sorry. Dante, as you know, at least as I'm presenting him, is on the threshold of the Christian Middle Ages and modernity. In lots of ways, he's modern. He takes himself as his hero, writes an epic. It's not in Latin, it's in the vernacular, it's in Italian. So Dante did amazing things that, that signal modernity. Petrarch follows him and admires Dante and wants to write poetry. He wrote a, he wrote a sonnet cycle um, um, to his um, beloved um, Laura. <clears throat> and and beneath that, the motive for that sonnet cycle is wanting to win the laurel crown, because that was the crown given to poets. Her name was Laura. She's an idolized figure, and if you know Petrarch, you know that he goes on and on, these tempests of tears and passions. And um, So it, it takes what Dante did with Beatrice, but makes it very emotional. He wrote this long sonnet cycle. It was a model for the Renaissance. Lots of Renaissance poets followed suit. Sidney wrote a sonnet cycle, and so did Shakespeare. These sonnets come from a sonnet cycle. I think there's, a, I think there's 154, I've forgotten. And in this sonnet cycle, in contrast to Petrarch's, Shakespeare's dealing with three figures, a himself, a young boy, and a mistress, a dark-haired woman. And the, the, the sonnet cycle is full of intrigues and betrayals. The young, the young man seems susceptible to the woman. I think Shakespeare may be attracted to her, but there's a sense of rivalries, betrayals, very modern. Couldn't be more different from Petrarch. <clears throat> but in that cycle are included some of the poems that we've read before, and we'll read them again. Poems to his beloved. But some of them are read at weddings. I mean, they're just they're some of the most beautiful sonnets we have in the English language. But I wanted to read one of them tonight, today, because of its relevance to um, All's Well That Ends Well and Merchant of Venice. Just keep Helena and Portia in your mind when I go through this poem, okay? I'm not going to say very much. Just In this poem, he's talking about this small group of people who've been given this power. But this small group of people are different from other groups in one particular way, okay? And you know that the Shakespeare sonnet is th um, three quatrains. Three groups of four lines, A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G. So he gives us three exempla, three examples of a principle and then a conclusion. And I've said this before because it just so often goes unnoticed. Nobody could do that if they did not have a sense of being. So the poem is implicitly philosophic in its structure, in its form. You can't have three different examples all relating to the same thing, unless they're all participating in it. So it's implied in the poem is being, and different things share in it. Otherwise, we couldn't have the conclusion that ties them all together. So what underlies this is a sense of being and all things participating in it. So, so we can arrive at universals. We can make conclusions about things. Okay? You could miss it, because <clears throat> it's just a nice-sounding poem. So he's talking about this certain group, the way they take care of this virtue, and then he makes a conclusion about it, okay? Sonnet 94. 
They that have the power to hurt and will do none, that do not do the thing they most do show, who moving others are themselves a stone, unmoved, cold, and to temptation slow. They rightly do inherit heaven's graces and husband nature's riches from expense. They are the lords and owners of their faces, others but stewards of their excellence. The summer's flower is to the summer's sweet, but to itself it only live and die. But if that flower with base infection meet, the basest weed outbraves his dignity. For sweetest things turn sourest to their <coughs> deeds, lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. Any, can anybody paraphrase? What's he saying? What's the conclusion? Can anybody restate it? What's the conclusion? Restate it another way. For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds. Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. Things that may outwardly be pleasing or beautiful to the eye might inward. <coughs> I mean, like people, you know, yeah. may be evil. Yes, yes. And there's still something more, though. It's not just outer and inner. When I look at the examples, they seem to suggest that those who <coughs> have the most beauty, the most power, if they abuse that, are the worst. Right. Right. fallen farther. Right. Take two pieces of steak, just for a common example. If you had two pieces of meat, one the most expensive cut you could get, and another a cheap cut, and you put them out in the sun, is the rotting that takes place going to be equal between them? If you take a rich piece of meat, I mean a very, put it out in the sun, they're going to have the equal number of maggots and worms and <laughs> my appetite. <laughs> no, the the richer meat will go fouler. It'll be it'll be more rotten. Anything that's nobler, anything that's nobler. To, to I mean the I mean, we talked about this. To whom to whom more is given more. I mean we talked about the pardoner and the wife of Bath. If if you if you've got special gifts and those gifts go here. The summer's flower to the summer. The summer's just being there. That, that is the beauty. This, it's a, this, I think the parallel here is a beautiful woman. The summer's flowers to the summer sweet, though to itself it only live and die. It's a beautiful thing. It adds a sweetness to the scene. But to itself, it just lives or die. It, it's not playing on its vanity. It's just there, living. But if that flower with base infection meet, the basest weed outbraves his dignity. If that flower goes bad, a weed will look better than that flower when it rots. For sweetest things turn sourest by their deeds. Lilies that, lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. The greater the gifts, the greater the rotting. Right? There's more to rot. There's more there. Lucifer, greatest angel. So he's, he's talking about this small group of people who, who inherit these gifts. And so take, take a basketball player, take a cellist, take a pianist, take a doctor, take a lawyer, take a teacher, 
Um, most people, most people, I mean, how many people use their gifts in a selfless way? It seems to me the temptation for most people with gifts is very often to use them for themselves, to show that they're better than other people, they're well-educated, and um, they can use those gifts for their influence on others, for themselves. The great bat I mean, you, I, you know, I hear these horror stories about NBA players, basketball players going on the road and what they do. They, they know that the fans love them. They'll play to them. How often do they exploit those in parties and, I mean, you know, go wherever you want with this stuff? How often does a great doctor who has a great reputation give in to temptation because he's, he's so well thought of or a businessman or whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever the gift. Whoever this small group is, uh, they do not do the thing they show. Beauty, power, be the talent of a pianist who moving others are themselves as stone, unmoved, cold, and temptation slow. They're not going to give in to these things the way other people do. They rightly do inherit heaven, heaven's graces. They didn't create the gifts themselves. They came from heaven. They rightly do inherit heaven's graces and husbands, nature's riches from expense. They're not going to waste them. They are the lords and owners of their faces, others but stewards of their excellence. Those who are inspired them, follow them. I admired Shakespeare tremendously. I admired Gerard Manley Hopkins tremendously. Chaucer, you know. Um, they're the ones who set inspirations in motion. I, I, I only want to take one more minute. I, uh, my reason for choosing it now is keep this in mind when you think of Helena and keep it in mind when you think about Portia or any of, any of, the, of the, the knights, say, in Chaucer's Knight's Tale. Or, but I want to go back to that first line for a second because it's really interesting. They that have the power to hurt and will do none. Most of us reading that first line, I think would assume before we get to the end of it, that we would come to a but. They that have the power to hurt, but will do none. Right, because he's making a contrast. But he doesn't say they that have the power to hurt, but will do none. He says, they that have the power to hurt and will do. Now, you know conjunctions don't have meaning. Words signify, they point to a reality. Conjunctions have no meaning. They, they join, conjoin, conjunction. An and expresses congruity. A but expresses opposition. You're putting two things that are congruous alongside of each other. I'm going to go get bacon and eggs and bread and, you know, or... I want to eat right now, but I can't. You know, so, they that have the power to hurt and will do not. Why does he use and instead of but? Because even if he used but, the they still will do none. They're still not going to do the harm. He could have said, they that have the power to hurt but will do none. They're not going to do it. Still not going to do it. Right? Still going to do good. But why did he use and? It just shows you. This is stunning. Most people take grammar and blow it off. This is a master. And he uses and. What is that? Why and? Does that make it stronger? How? Like you were saying the but is a contrast. 
like it's a given that because they're given this um, power to hurt, but they and they don't. And you said, but they you're good. Yeah, I yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I mean, the long this one. No. Anybody else? Lois, go ahead. Well, I think it's because you have a choice. You have this power, <clears throat> so you can choose to use it or not. But you can do it. But you can do it with a butter and or. I mean, sorry, butter. Well, logically, a statement to be true and an and, both of them have to be true. Both and. of them have to be true to make the statement true. And, sorry, Don. Where so? How, <laughs> I'm sorry. So how, what? How does that explain something here? Flesh it out, can you? For. Sorry? And shows the selflessness. And it's innate, but some of the people are given for selflessness. Yes. It's innate. Those that have the power, but will do none, make it clear that they have to overcome something to do it. They that have the power, but will. They that have the power and will do says there's nothing overcome. They're acting in accord with a virtue. They're one with that virtue. So he, exactly, so he's talking about a very small group of people, those people for whom virtue is so strong in them that they don't have to overcome something, they're going to do it. Who moving others are themselves a stone, unmoved, cold, and two temptations slow. What he's making clear is that there are some people whose virtues are so strong that what they do is congruent with that virtue. There's nothing. To, there may be other men who have the same powers. But they have to overcome something in themselves in order to do good. So he's talking about a really small group of people. And I'm saying that because if you've read Merchant, you know how extraordinary Portia is. And as you move through All's Well, you'll see what an extraordinary woman uh, Helen is. That they're just not giving in to what the people around them are. Um, so... Okay, they that have the power to hurt and will do none. Shakespeare is amazing. <laughs> Whoever thought an and or a but could have that? I love it. <laughs> Just, <laughs> what he does is truly amazing. Bob, would you look at the writing? I just haven't seen it on the Sure. Okay, A, B, A, B. Go ahead. You tell me. You're doing good. Let's see, none, stone, show, slow. So A, B, A, B, graces, faces, expenses, excellence. Oh, do you change? So is that C, D, C, D? So it'd be A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D. Oh, okay. Well, sweet, dying, meat, dignity. So it's E, F, E, F. Right. And G, G. Okay. Okay. You're getting good. <laughs> when can we expect a poem? <laughs> In the next slide. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
very briefly. Um, we keep going back to poetry. I want to just, um, it, I want to come to a conclusion about where Christ is here, so I want to go back to poetry just for a minute. Remember, we've been talking about poetry as prophetic in <coughs> one particular sense, that poetry often shows us things about ourselves that we don't want to see. It's one of its values. And it's concrete. It's not an idea. It's not an abstraction. We participate with other human beings in an action. We're involved with them. We become part of their lives. So we experience. Remember, po the knowledge that poetry gives us is knowledge as experience, not idea. So we're involved with people going through their lives and learning things from that experience. And one of the things we're learning is um, to see sides of ourselves that often we don't want to see. Um, so words are important. Um, every, one of the, every one of the poems is a twice from Chaucer. Every one of the poems is a twice told tale. Chaucer got his poems from Petrarch and he also got them from Boccaccio. And so did Shakespeare. Every one of Shakespeare's stories comes from an, a previous source, a story that was already told. So the, the Renaissance poet, the greatest poet in the world, Dante himself, you know Dante took all of his stories from Homer and Virgil. and What they do is take the past and just rewrite it. They, 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 they keep the past alive by what they do. And we've talked about this. In some sense, they're like God. They're not, the past isn't closed off the way it is for God. There's no past for God, right? There's no past or future. What the poets are doing is something like God because they're keeping the past alive in the present. They're making the present richer. So every one of these stories is a twice-told tale. Um, it keeps the past, they, each one keeps the past alive in a new form. I've said this since Homer. The poets carry the past forward, redeeming it as they go. Words are talismanic. They have a talismanic power. The umpire says, out. I think I went through this last week. The empire is out. You're out. When a doctor says you're this, suddenly that thing becomes real by the word. It's a lot like God's fiat, let there be. And there is. I, I think the strongest example of it um, is marriage. To me, it's stunning um, to say I do. In that moment, in that moment, that word is efficacious. It has a power for affecting something. When you say, I do, you give your word. From that point on, you're held to it. You're going to, and take the word away. Take the word away, and you can do whatever you want. Put the word in place, it means you're going to be tested all your life. You're going to fail, you're going to pick up, you're going to, you know. But if you take the word away, there's no test. You can do whatever you want. So words have a power of efficacy. They, they make they don't just, the, for the modern linguist, words signify. What I'm saying for the poet is words affect. They have a power to do. Because the ultimate source of them is the word. The word. So the poet is, has, is, is giving us something only poetry can give us. I gave the example in the, um, in the one story. God, I'm losing Remember where the widow, is it the partner, the seminar, where the widow says, curse you, unless you repent? 
And he doesn't repent and he goes to hell. Her words are efficacious. She's the, her words, the occasion for that event to happen. She doesn't cause it. He causes it himself because he refused. But it's the occasion. There's a power for affecting that. So words have this extraordinary power. We've been seeing it all along. Um, another aspect of language is important to keep in mind here. When we look at the stories themselves, every one of the pilgrims tells a story. He's in his own world. And we know, we know how isolated lots of them are as individuals. They're very modern in that sense. They're, they're so disconnected from one another. When a, so often when one of the pilgrims tells a story, it's telling a story on somebody. He's trying to get back. So there's this rivalry, this competitiveness, this put down. Um, you, can know, you know their pride, their envy, their jealousy. They want to hurt, um, requite, trying to requite um, some wound given to them. So in one sense, they're disconnected. The one person who connects them, the poet. He's extraordinary because he, and I, this is so, I mean, it's so Boethian. He takes the words of these characters, each one telling a story, and he, he represents them in a harmony they don't have. It goes back to that um, rhyme royal structure, right? That each story, because they didn't, they didn't do the rhyming the way he did. He's, he's reporting what they told us, but he's transforming what they did. He's putting it to a rhyme royal poetic line, right? So he's bringing a beauty and a grace, and I'm going to say a spirit of charity, a justice that they don't always have. He's the one pulling it together. And we talked about that. The fact that it's rhyme royal means there is this beauty and harmony that's always present. It's Boethian. There's some good always going on. God's at work with things. So is the poet. In that sense, he, he's like God. He reminds us of what God's doing through his work. Is that clear? Because it's, it's sort of so obvious, but we can just overlook it. Is that clear? Well, did I misunderstand you? You said something about saying in the words, I do, and then I heard, and we're helpless. What? Uh, helpless. Helpless. You said the word helpless. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. I think it. And if you say I do, and you say those words, have you? I mean, look at how many couples are divorced within a year, two, or three, and they said I do. No, I know, I know that. I but I, I, but I'm saying I don't remember saying helpless. I can't recall my words, but what I was saying was when you say, I mean, as much as I can repeat it, when you say I do, you're bound. What I what I said afterwards, put the words away. Don't say them. You can do whatever you want then. You're not bound to anything. But once you say, I do, those words are efficacious. You stand there. You're there in that vow. You're going to be tested. So whatever you do, fail, pick up, you know, you're still bound by it. If you don't have those words, you can do whatever you want. That was the point that I was making, that there's a real power to speak. I, I just think marriage is one of the best cases of it. Because when you, it's the words. When you say, I do, you give your word. Your, your soul is committed to it. You can break your word, um, but it's a vow. You're saying it. You're bound to it. Um, well, you know, Rory, Richard Rohr, he said when he was preparing people for marriage and getting ready, at the altar when the man says, I do, 
he passes out. Yeah. Because it's such a confrontation with the ego. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like oh, oh, what am I saying? Right. It's too, it's too much. And it's interesting that the men get shake. I think, you know, shakier than women. There hasn't been a woman to ever pass out. The men pass out. <laughs> Did I tell you this story when Suzanne, I think I've already said it, when um, we got married, I was raised Greek Orthodox, you know Suzanne was Protestant. We got married in her house with a minister. It wasn't a, but I mean the church recognizes when you're married, you're married. But I didn't look at it, I mean we were married for sure. We returned to Greek Orthodoxy, went back, um, we returned to Christianity and had Amy baptized and, and then we converted and we became Catholic and, and I had always, always in my life wanted to have our marriage on a mass, never was. Each one of our kids that's married, Amy's not married, but all the other kids got married in a mass. That was so special to me. I can't tell you, how, I cannot tell you how special that was to see our kids married in a mass. Late in our life, when we were at Magdalen in New Hampshire, we, it was an ordeal, the problems in the college, and we got to know this priest really well and loved him, and the kids loved him a lot. And I think I, it was a very, very painful ordeal. I, uh, I don't want to go into the details of it, but um, out of that, somewhere, one day when I was talking to Father Steve, I said, out of nowhere, can we um, can we renew our vows? You know, I don't know where that came, but he said, sure. So Easter came, and the kids showed up, because they always showed up for the major holidays, Christmas and Easter, and they were all there. So we had Easter Vigil Mass Saturday. Father asked if we could come to church the next day, and there was no Mass at that time. So I, I thought we would go to the church, and Suzanne and I would look at each other and give our vows again. We, didn't, we wrote out our first vows. Um, and we arrived, there was nobody there but Father and Suzanne and me and the kids. That was it. Father started a Mass. He performed a Mass. God, I can't even talk about it without... I, I mean, it just broke up. Just to, to, that we were renewing our vows in a Mass in my mind, took me to the cross and the sacrifice, and which wasn't present. I mean, it may have been implied in our first marriage, but it wasn't. When it came time to give our vows, and I, we looked at each other, my knees were shaking. We'd been married for, yeah, I mean, 30, 40 years. We'd been married. I looked at her and my knees, my knees were shaking. <laughs> God. Oh, God. You're waking up to what you're doing. <laughs> yes. I think it's, it's, it's the implications are far graver when yes. you're speaking in a mass with the crucifix and everything else. Or you were thinking, how come God blessed me with such a wonderful woman? <laughs> oh, stop. No, I was thinking... This is in God's presence in a way it wasn't before. It's just a whole other dimension of me. You what happens if she doesn't say, I do. <laughs> Boy, the negative, negative and positive minds in this class. I don't. <laughs> okay, would you all control yourself for a few minutes here? It's going to be hard.
Um, the poet's the one who brings them together, and he transforms them. We'll come back to this in Another thing, Chaucer makes it clear there's nothing for us to be ashamed of in the body. That's absolutely crucial. I can't, I can't, I don't, I, it's hard for me to, I know there are people who are offended, Catholics who are offended by Chaucer. He, he's, he's helping us to laugh at ourselves. There's not, he, he makes no judgments. He's a, he's a comic writer. He, show, he shows the worst things, the partner, the summoner, the friar. There's lots not good to say about those men. Lots not good to say about the wife of Bath. Um, but he, he helps us to laugh at our foibles. So there's a spirit, there's a faith and a spirit of charity informing all he does. He brings that to his form, the way he presents them. Um, he, he lets us know there's nothing to be ashamed about in our human body. We should be able to laugh at it. He was critical of the church officials, and I, I think Suzanne's comment about them when we did it, when she said, to whom is more is given, that you know, they rightfully deserve the criticism because they're trafficking on spiritual realities. They're, they're using them for themselves. And I just want to, um, when we went over the women, Constance, the prioress, wife of Bath and Dorigen, um, <clears throat> just briefly, I, one of the questions that I asked last week was, who comes off better, the men or the women? And I think all of us saw the women do. And I, I want to come back to that today because I want to look at the Griselda. But um, Suzanne had, had said you know, about the, the church functionaries that to whom more was given, uh, more would be expected. And uh, we talked briefly about the wife of Bath. And I just want to make a, a brief comparison. And, and according to a hierarchy of values, it seems to me the, the partner the summoner and the friar, but particularly the partner, are worse than the wife of Bath because they're playing with spiritual reality. It goes back to Lilies at Fester. They're dealing with a higher order of reality. Um, the wife of Bath is in a domestic setting. It's a marriage. I'm not, I'm not downplaying that, but it's, it's, it's not an order of spiritual realities that, um, that we find in the other cases. But I want to say this about the wife of Bath, too. When you set her if, if you set her against the men, the men are dealing with spiritual realities. I think their sins are graver. But the interesting thing, too, is when you set her against women, and I'm going to come back to this when we talk about Griselda, if you set her against women, her sin is graver. Because if you see what Chaucer's doing with women, she's doing something against her sex. One of the things that makes the women stand out in, this story, in these stories is their humility. She has no humility at all. She spends 20 pages in the prologue justifying herself. She just she, she, she can't draw enough evidence to show how all these men are wrong. So she spends her whole prologue blaming men, justifying herself. Um, so just be aware of the, of the richness of what Chaucer is putting before us. Um, Last question before we turn to, um, to uh, all's well. Is, the, is there anybody Christ-like in these, these stories, Chaucer of the Canterbury Tales? I think there are Christ acts, Palamon, our seat, you know, when they give up their lives, Emily, when she gives up, I mean, we see these Christ 
acts often, you know, when somebody denies themselves in, in an act of love. But is there anybody Christ-like, a Christ-bearer? Better way of putting it. Maybe. Constance, for sure. Huh? Constance, for sure. Constance, yeah. Can you say why, just so we don't assume anything, Fred? Just. Yeah, I just think that if there's any character in all of the tales that we've read, that the faith is always there, regardless of what happens. It's almost, you know, a, an example of Boethius's theology. That, you know, no matter what happens, she always saw it as you know, God's path to wherever it was going to lead, and that's stayed throughout the entire story, despite the fact that she spent most of her life at sea. Yeah, right. Yeah, and she's named well, Constance. Um, her name is so fitting to her being who she is. I mean, there are others that you can, you can example, like Griselda, for example, you see aspects of Christ. I'm going to go hold off on her because I'm going to go there now. Yeah, no, 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 no. I'm glad because you. Um, anybody else before we go to Griselda? I've got one other that I don't think anybody's going to name. I think maybe Dorjan. Dorjan, yeah. Yeah. All the women, except the wife of Bath. I mean, the wife of Bath is a really selfish woman. Self justifying, selfish. She trades on her sex, she uses the men, she gets their properties. It's funny that we're more inclined to overlook it in her than we are in the church officials. I mean, she's just, she's so much larger than life. She just goes on and on and on. But it, it's hard to miss her selfishness. It's just how much she does for herself and the way she uses men. Um, let's look at Dorjan because there's something going on here we, we've got to look at. Or, sorry, Griselda. On page 320. The clerk gives his prologue, and he, and he says on page 321 that he got this story from Petrarch, Francis Petrarch, the poet laureate, they called him, whose sweet rhetoric of late illumined Italy with poetry. So consciously he's going um, back to Petrarch. He tells the story of this man named Walter who lived the life of a bachelor. He was a marquis. All the townspeople were getting concerned because they didn't have an heir, so they go to him and ask him to have an heir. Um, and it says on page 322, I blame his failure in consideration of what the distant future might provide. He always fed his present inclination. That's what he, that's part, he's um, self-serving, self-satisfying, he do, does what he wants. Um, the town folks come to him and urge him to marry on, in, uh, in part two, page 326, he's out riding, and he um, passes by this, this poor village where a man, Janicula, has a, a young girl named Griselda. She's a beautiful woman and very virtuous, a good woman. Um, 327, though she had a girl of tender age, yet in the breast of her virginity, there was a ripeness, seriousness, and sage with fostering love and reverent constancy, her poor old father in his poverty she tended, spun her wheel and watched his sheep at pasture, never idle, save asleep. So she worked to take care of her father um, 
And thus she kept her father's heart aloft with all the obedience, all the diligence by which a child can show her reverence. So obedience is a serious virtue for her. She's modest, um, sage. They marry and um, sorry. She never took her beauty for granted, never used it. She, she's like the, those in the poem. She never used her gifts for herself. On page 330, the people don't know who he's going to marry. He comes to Janicola's house and talks with him and then says he has to go to her directly to get her permission. 330, Griselda, I would have you understand it's pleasing to your father and me that I should marry you, and here's my hand. If, as I may conjecture, you agree, but I would ask but I would rather ask you first, said he, since all is done in such a hasty way, will you consent or pause before you say? I warn you to be ready to obey my lightest whim and pleasure. You must show a willing heart and grudging night or day. Whether I please to offer joy or woe, when I say yes, you never shall say no. Either by word or frowning defiance, swear this and I will swear to our alliance. She says, top of the next page, Lord, unworthy though I be of so much honor, so unmerited, it seems good to you it is to me. And here I promise never willingly to disobey in deed or thought or breath, though I should die, and yet I fear my death. So heroically she gives her consent. They marry. Now you know, I don't want to go through all this, you know that they have a daughter, and um, on page 334, Walter goes to Griselda to remind her of the debt she owes him. I say, Griselda, this present dignity to which I raised you cannot have, I know, made you forgetful of your debt to me, who took you up from what was poor and low, for all the little wealth that you could show. Take heed of every word I say to you. No one is here to hear it but us two. She reaffirms her vow. Now, shortly after that, he has a henchman come and get the daughter and take it away. She doesn't utter a sound. She does nothing to, to accuse him or blame him. Um, she's holding true to her vow, and the man takes her away, presumably to kill. Um, and so this is the first of his tests to see if she's really faithful to her vow. Um, 338. As glad, as humble, as quick to serve, and in her love as she was wont to be, and everything the same, she did not swerve. And of her daughter, not a word said she. There was no sign of that adversity to see upon her and her daughter's name she never used in earnest or in game. Years go by, they have a son, and he does the same thing with a son. I don't want to go through this because I want to get to my question. And a henchman comes, takes the son. She doesn't object. She shows um, no anger. Um... She is stoic and humble and obedient. Finally, seeing that she's faithful again, he, he concocts this bull, papal bull from Rome, approving of his divorce because he says the, the people are beginning to question the marriage and 
So they, they apparently go through this divorce, and the, the new bride is coming with a, with a young boy with her. Um, Griselda doesn't know that the woman, the new bride, is in fact her daughter. She's returning. And he asks, Walter asks Griselda to prepare. So he's asking Griselda, who was his wife, to serve the woman who she knows is going to replace her and marry Walter. And she does. Graciously, there's no spite, there's no vengeance. She just serves. At that point, finally, when she does all of this um, without any grudging, um, um, she says, 350, one thing I beg of you and warn you to, never to goad her, never put her on trial, this tender girl as I have known you do, for she was fostered preciously, a vile, more delicate, I think, the self-denial, adversity, might force on her would be... Now, I don't hear a tone of criticism or fault-finding. She's asking in all humility that he not test this young bride the way he tested her. I think the self-denial adversity might force on her would be harder for her to suffer than for me when Walter saw this patience in Griselle, her happy face, no malice there at all, and thought of his offenses being to test, he stops, and finally he says, enough. Um, and he says, this is your daughter, this, or our daughter, this is our son. She faints at the news. She's so overwhelmed at the news. When she comes to consciousness, she, she, she clasps the children to her breasts in this extraordinary moment of wonder and joy, and it goes on to say that Walter's heir replaced him. He died soon after that. Um, and then um, in his envoy, Chaucer will make a point of saying, men don't do this. You know, there may be Griseldas in the world, but don't count on it very often. And, um, and that's the Griselda story. Now, I, let me just ask for general responses, and I've got a specific question. But... Um, the, the critics, largely feminist, look at this with horror because they say Griselda's a, um, a, doormat. a doormat, doormat kind of figure, and she's just used. And what do you what do you say? What can we say? I think I think let me maybe let's cut this short. I I think all of us can find Walter is not a likable guy. If I, I mean, I've said this before, but if, if I were around and I knew what he was doing, I would have very few qualms going to that man and saying some things to him. I mean, I would have hard things to say to him. We don't generally like Walter, but if we can shift the foot, is there anything good to say about Griselda? Because the typical attitude is she's just too giving, that she's, can anything positive be said? Her obedience. She promised it and she gave it. She's loyal, she's true to her word. Yeah. Even though he's an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. I she kept her word. Time for this. Sorry? She kept her word. Yeah. So she's a woman of her word. For sure. Yeah. I had a hard time with this. Yeah. I think she was an accessory to murder. And I just don't, I just do not. I, I, I had a really strong um, revulsion 
for her not standing up for her child. And I just think that, you know, to be complicit is just wrong. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead, Sue. Well, I know you have it up there, so I did read it. But while I was reading the story, I thought of Joe. Mm -hmm. And lots yep. of awful things happen to people around Joe. Yep. And if you like, he, quote, lets them happen, or they happen, and he doesn't do anything about it. He lets, sorry, no, he. Okay, not to, to take sorry, away he, the lets, because you're going to get this derailed. <laughs> no, I mean, it ha things, bad things happen around Job. And Job is still faithful. And I looked at that. Wait a minute, let me, can I stop for a second? I want to just, because I. They don't just happen. Remember, no. wait, hold on, hold on, because I really, I'm, I, I want this to go forward because I think this is really important. Remember, in the Job story, it begins with um, Satan coming to God, and God loving Job, and His allowing Satan to do these things to test him. So they're not just happening. Satan is the is the agent by which these, and it, it's clear from the beginning that God is allowing this as a trial to test Job's faith. So I just, but the Job story is so behind us, but go ahead. Well, okay, and I think in the same way, Walter, who I think has a predecessor in Satan, <laughs> <laughs> is the vehicle by which he tests Griselda, right. and she comes through it, and and I, I agree. I mean, in this, from current ways of thinking, um, but I would have said that even in Job, current ways of thinking, there are things that are wrong with this whole thing. Mm -hmm. But she does protect, this is reaching, she does protect her children because in each case she signs them with the sign of the cross. So she is also showing her deep faith yeah, well, yeah. that, that, that she is not in charge of them. Now, you know, she probably would be accused of being a conspirator. But I think in the story that those are the things that came through. Yeah, yeah. Let me just ask one thing before we go to the next step. I want to, because I want to take the next step. Can anybody bring Bo Boethius in here in a way that would help? Go. Well, and it's, you bring up a good point, and I think it's maybe a little bit of the modern world versus non-modern world, let's just say, you know, if you, if you take Boethius for what it is, it basically says that, you know, good things, you know, may happen to, to bad people, bad things may happen to good people, but there is no bad fortune. Everything is, evolves as God plans it to, for a reason, and we're just not smart enough to know what that reason is most of the time. Yeah. So if you if you take that and you believe it, and that is your faith, yeah. then Griselda did exactly what she was supposed to do. Despite the fact that she, I'm sure, wasn't thrilled about having her children taken off, if mm -hmm. she if she believed that faith that everything happens because it's God's will, then you you give them the sign of the cross and yeah. And what happens happens. We have we have responses to that. I mean, my first 
thought was if this was my son-in-law, I'd take him on a one-trick trip to the desert. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. But I, I think that may just question, you know, whether I'm a true believer in Boethius at this point or still struggling. And I think that's kind of the, I think that's what Shakespeare's, I mean, in this case, I'm so going right. to all as well. So right. well but I, I, think, yeah. I think that's what he's trying to, Yeah. He, he's, He's reflecting on Boethius in this story, and the question is, what you walk away from it is, you know, kind of where you are in your faith journey. Yeah. If um, Fred ever invites us or me on a train trip, you know, just, <laughs> just remind me of this class, will you? <laughs> what guarantee is there in that? I could be. <laughs> I don't think we can answer, yeah. The, you know, we all have bad fortune in an incident or in over a month, but this is a multi-year plot to really, you know, yeah. I Honestly, I don't think we can answer, but let me offer this thought on it. And, and this is speculative, but, it, but it's, you know, when you read Chaucer and Shakespeare enough or Dante, you know that they're great writers and they're always dealing with a, a hidden inner world, motives, whatever the motives are. We don't know. But one of the things we can say with some assurance, and this is just with some assurance, it's not like these are certain facts, is that um, he carries a lot of pride. He reminds me of the men in um, Merchant of Venice who woo Portia, who think that they deserve a lot because they're proud and He's a man who clearly thinks he deserves a lot. He reminds me of Aragon in Morocco, and if you've read Merchant of Venice there. And those kinds of men have extraordinary expectations of their wives and ask a lot. And by the way, just to get real for a minute, so I believe that's there. You know, so you can almost read this as a parable. I, I don't want to put it that way because I'd like to see it as a real story. But... When you have a man like that marriage, it's not uncommon for that kind of man to have those expectations and, and aware that the wife will never be able to measure up. I think there are lots of women that way who do the same thing, you know, that women have these extraordinary expectations and make these demands. And that, those are just psychological facts. We don't know if we can't say, well, we can say he's a proud man. He's lived satisfying his own pleasures. When he makes that vow, he says, if I say yes, you, you know, you have a sense of who he is, that he's the kind of man who would expect a lot. So when I look at him, I see him as a kind of, as an image of what's in a lot of men, period. You know, that men bring expectations and make demands and so do wives. So here's my question. This, is, this to me gets to the root of things because it, Walter is not a likable guy. I don't think he's the devil um, or even remote. He's, he's, I don't think, but anyway, here, here's my question. What would be wrong? One of the parishioners on Monday night said, I don't want to, one of the parishioners said, the story stops, I think it's 305, whatever page. When the henchman came to took, take the boy, girl. the girl, sorry. When the henchman came to took the girl, the parishioner said, I take out my gun and shoot him. The story's over. 
And after I shot him, I prayed to Jesus to send him to hell. <laughs> so there, you know, she, she was feeling, and, and, and she went and said, that's my baby. Now, what's wrong with that? And I'm saying this really seriously. What's wrong with that response? I don't want, I mean, I don't want to make this personal, but I don't have to get to it. What's wrong with that response there? That, you, you've already, I thought Linda was, I mean, she said she's being true to her word, yeah. What's wrong with that response dealing with those circumstances? If you keep Boethius in mind, what do we learn? An example of like, the end justifies the mean. I mean, you, 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 you think you're, you're doing something to protect your child, but you're actually killing somebody, which is... Killing who? The, the henchman. And the husband. Oh, and the husband, too, yeah. Wait, wait, hold on. Right. Would she be just in doing that? Just. On a level of justice. Yeah, probably on a level of justice. Is Walter going to kill his children? No. No, hold on. Hold on. Because what's at issue right now is an absolute misreading of the text, which is what Boethius says. We keep thinking we have all these answers for things, his whole thing is you've lost your beginnings, you've lost your ends, God's seeing things you don't even know. When, you're so, when, you're, when you feel hurt at what somebody does to you, your first response, we know this from Dante, is to strike out in anger. Is he killing those kids? No. She is completely misreading it. On the surface, she's absolutely right. She believes he's going to kill them. On the surface. But she's wrong. And it's a way of underscoring God is doing something. We very often jump to conclusions. I mean, you hear it in the political rush to conclusions. You almost can't turn on the news today without. We so often misread things because we let our emotions get in the way. And Boethius says, I mean, Frederick's reminded. I have to leave. I'm sorry. Dr. Support. Um, remember, Frederick said, remind. Boethius says, there is no bad fortune. The wonder of Griselda is, is she's acting on that faith that God is doing, even if she can't see it. If she took that man's life, she, hold on, this is really, if she took that man's life, she would be putting her own soul in danger because she thinks self-righteously, she's doing something according to justice, when she's not. It's a difficult story because what it's about partly is misreading. The, the, in the story, there's this depth of irony. If we stand with a woman, it looks like she's taking her children, killing them. I want to go a step farther because this, to me, gets to something in the Middle Ages. Fred and Francis and Suzanne and I were talking about this the other day, and we've had this conversation a couple of times. Fred was describing his grandmother sort of ironic to hear that he's describing his grandmother who was a very um, religious person had a very strong faith my grandmother was the same way absolutely ignorant uneducated she came from Greece peasant she had candles you know I've never done that I won't but there was nothing else in her life except her faith that was it um Here's one of the things that we inherit from a, in our understanding of women that we get from the Middle Ages. This is so extraordinary to me. Why is it the women come off better than the men so often in Chaucer? 
Why is it the women consistently come off better? I'm going to give, offer a suggestion here. Did, did, the, did the pagan world look at women the same way Christian men, Christianity do? Absolutely not. For two main reasons. Because for Christians, a woman, a woman led us to Christ. She brought Christ into the world, and she did it with an act of absolute obedience. Christ came to us through Mary. God came to us. A woman was honored. More importantly, there was only one human being in history, all of history, only one. It was a woman whose virtues were perfect. If you go through Dante, the Purgatorio, you know that at every sin, every sin has a, a, a sin and its um, opposite virtue. Remember the contrapassos? The, every sin is answered by virtue. What's the opposite of pride? Humility. What's the opposite of envy? <clears throat> Mercy, generosity. You can wrath, you know, you can line them up. There's only one person who was perfect in every one of those virtues. It was not a man, it was a woman. She was given a grace to do that. Just contemplate on that fact for a minute. A woman was the means of bringing Christ into the world, and she was perfect in every virtue. What that does for an image of woman, her humility, her meekness, her generosity, you know, um, you can go down the list with every one of them. Um, go back to the purgatory and read it. Um, the natural response of a woman, if you saw your kids in danger, would be to protect them. You'd want to strike out. That's a natural. Um, that's a natural response. But we're also asked to bring in a supernatural quality to what we do with things, that we look, to, we look for a grace to do those things we we. We couldn't do without them. That wasn't clear. Without a grace, we do things naturally. But very often, our natural response is lacking in something because we don't see. That's why the supernatural graces are offered to us. When Mary was at the cross, what was the response to the men who killed her baby, her son? She cursed them, want to shoot them? What was Mary's response? This was her son. Worse than that, this, this was her son who was also gone. What was Mary's response? Acceptance. Sorry? Acceptance. Yeah. Or surrender. Or, and I just wonder if forgiveness. You know, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to picture Mary without forgiving them because this was God. I don't see Mary holding on to spite. Huh? Her son was on the cross and said, forgive them for they don't know what Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the, the image of womanhood after Mary radically changes. And it's, it's impossible for me to read through the Canterbury Tales and see how extraordinary the women are, and Shakespeare, without wondering, how could they have done that unless it was part of their faith? Um... um we, we're going to do Merchant of Venice shortly, and when you, you, know, you guys have already done it, but if you, if you line the men up, 
I'm doing it at Elizabeth Ann Seton right now, and I'm getting so disgusted with these men again. The men in Merchant of Venice, they're all too, I can't swear here. Um, I'm on tape. Um, the men are all too light. They're way too light. The women educate them at the end. Remember, they take them to cast. They, they heap coals on their heads about their rings. And in the courtroom scene when Shylock is about ready to give his, his life, Bassanio um, uh, goes, um, there's nothing in life more dear to me, not my wife, not da, 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 that I would willingly give for you. And Portia says, your wife would not be happy if she were by to hear it. And Graziano says, I would give my wife my life and all these things. And Nerissa says, she, there would be a quarrel. I mean, you know, they're, act, they're acting, God, I just want to, get, I want to get angry at men here. They're acting noble, strong, brave. They're being men. And the women are going, you might check with your wife before, you know. I mean, they're married now. They've just made a, and then they get to the end, and they give, remember, they give the women the rings, and when they get home, the women are going to take them apart for it. The women are teachers. The men are off risking and doing stupid things. In fact, they put Antonio in that problem in the first place because Antonio lent the money, and the bond was willing to risk his life. When, when I asked the question, why this difference? One of the women in the class, I just, I thought, she was so right. She said, she said, because the men are, I said, why are the men so light in the commercial regime? She said, because the men are um, tra transactional. transactional. You know, they, so they don't carry this past, the wisdom, the learning. They want to know enough to know to get wealthy, to, you know, that they're transactional. So they're on this surface. It's the women who are teachers. Constantly caring. Women are the bearers of life. They bring life into the world. So if you look at Mary um, raising her, raising God in obedience, the, the line of the, remember when Mary and Joseph go back to find Christ after he's been gone? And it, the passage ends with saying, after she finds him, she scolds him so mildly. She said, she didn't blow up at her baby. She doesn't blow up. She said something like, why have you done this to us? That's her anger. And then the last words are, and, and they, went off, they went home. How do you put They went home, and he, and he grew in obedience. That's God obeying. So it just radically changes our understanding of woman. Now here's the, here's, I'm, I'm going to stop because here's where I want to go. Just hold on to this notion of Griselda. So I put it here to end because I wanted to set it next to All's Well. And let me just give a, a couple of thoughts on All's Well to, to point you forward. We've seen in Chaucer this extraordinary treatment of women, that, that they have this capacity um, to change men's lives, to make men better. Um, and in the, in the stories, it's really clear that the men need to be made better. <laughs> and that, we, that women have something. Um, I mean, I, I hope everybody's here, because I, I mean, we can so overlook this stuff. I think most of us, however much our wives or husbands torment us or you know, whatever pain we suffer, generally we end up being grateful for whatever it is we learn from each other in time and however you know, our marriages help us to change. 
The women are extraordinary. They're very patient. They have a humility, generally speaking, deeper than the humility of men. Um, in the wife of Bath, it's gone. She's proud and arrogant, selfish. I mean, it's gone. She's gone through five husbands. I mean, the, 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 the image of woman that emerges from that is pretty remarkable. It won't sit well with a modern woman because a modern woman wants to be like a man and do what men do. But. She reflects the last two lines in sonnet number 94. The, yeah, right, right, yeah. The Lizard Fester. Um, but here, here, a very quick overview. This is so important. Um, all's well that ends well. All's well that ends well. That's a rephrasing of Machiavelli's The Ends Justify the Means. So the opening question for us in going into this play, is Helena a Machiavellian modern woman? Just first, I'm going to ask a series of questions. Shakespeare is aware of um, Machiavelli. He's read him. He knows him well. Shakespeare is aware of the Copernican Revolution. He knows that we've entered a scientific world. This man's a genius. He knows we've entered a scientific world. That is, he knows we've entered a world of thought, thinking. He's aware of the um, Protestant Reformation. We went this, through this months ago and we were looking at, um, at Paradise Lost and the comedian, Dante. He's aware of the Protestant Reformation and the tendency to make the private will more important than the objective things in, um, in Christ and in God. Listen to this. Uh. Act 2, scene 3. You don't have to go there. Just don't go there. Just listen. This is just after... This is just... This is kind of... This is, No, it's not, but it's, it's, it's close by. Helena's, Helena's got this project. It's a project. She's got a plan, and she's setting out to do it. She's been given this extraordinary power by her father, who is a physician, and it's, it's described in terms of a third eye. She loves Bertram when he's a knave, not a good man. She loves him. She sees something, or the question is, what does she see in him? She has an ability to see something in him that nobody else does. Okay. At one point in the play, in Act 2, Scene 3, we've got these lines. Um, sorry. Opening of Scene 3. They say miracles are past, and we have our philosophical persons to make modern and familiar that is to explain them away because we've got science now. We have our philosophical persons to make modern and familiar things supernatural and causeless. Hence it is that we make trifles of terrors ensconcing ourselves into seeming knowledge when we should submit ourselves to an unknown fear. The age of miracles is gone. The Reformation took them away. Remember I talked about the Reformation as the advent of the sign. We, we enter a world in which rationalizing explains everything now. 
The miraculous is gone. The sacraments are gone. We went through this. The sacraments are gone. So Shakespeare is aware of Machiavelli, the Copernican Revolution. He's aware of the Reformation. He knows that we're entering a new world. And I've talked about this before. You know that according to the Platonic cave, the Plato's cave, that every regime presents its different aspect of that cave. In this world that we enter now, we're in France. It's not Merchant of Venice. It's not the commercial republic where it's democratic. We're in France. It's an aristocracy. It's under a king and lords. So he's dealing with a hierarchical um, model of mo monarchy, the monarchical regime with lords who owe their obedience to a king. It's, it's, a, it's a dying world. In the opening scenes, we learn uh, Bertram's father just died. Helena's father just died. The king is sick. We're entering a decaying world. This aristocracy is dying. In the opening lines, the, the countess talks about her son as if he were a husband. My own question about that is, is Shakespeare showing us that this royal world, because it's so inbred, isn't incestuous? That in a hierarchical, monarchical world where you're inbreeding, it becomes incestuous. What happens in this story? All the men, because they're sick of this French world of doing nothing, sitting around, want to go off to these wars in where? Italy. What's going on in Italy? Centuries of regimes like we, those that we saw in Dante's Commedia. The modern commercial, the Renaissance <coughs> beginnings are in Italy. So we've got Shakespeare presenting us with a, a decaying, what's the word, um, decadent, decaying France. The soldiers go off to Italy, and what happens there involving Helena will bring her back and she becomes an instrument for changing that hierarchical order. Okay? Now, she goes to the king, she's got her plan, and offers to heal him. He blows her off, says all these physicians have tried, they're all laughing at her, they're mocking her, she can't do it. I can't, I'm trying to leave some of this out. She goes to him, and he keeps pushing her off, and she, she persists. She won't go away, and they make an arrangement. I'm, I'm going to give you a quiz on when we meet on what's the arrangement, and I can't tell you what happens. How do I do this without telling you? Something happens involving her and the king and Bertram. Bertram's going to... Ber stop. Bertram's going to go off to Italy, and something is going to happen to Helen there. And, and what happens when she comes back is going to radically transform that French monarchy. Now, what is Shakespeare saying about the importance of the Renaissance, which begins in Italy and moves west to France and England? What's he saying about the influence of that on two monarchies? Because England was monarchic and so is France. And if you know anything about the difference, you know that the French have always been far more intellectual than the English. Always. French Revolution was highly intellectual. England, England made compromises, didn't go there. The French are always intellectual, Sartre and, you know. So what we get in France are all these men living in their heads. The action that takes place in this place is largely intellectual. It's in the, it's in the mind, in words. 
what happens when this woman comes back, and once again, why a woman? What are Helena's virtues? Set her next to Griselda. Okay. So we're going from Griselda, who is this extraordinary image of this Christ-like humility. She's willing to suffer all of this. And put it this way, if she'd killed, if, if she had killed Walter, she would have been committing murder herself. Because Walter was not... She not only would have killed him, I mean, if, if she had killed him, she would have brought... This is, goes to Fred point. She would have brought to an end, she would have prevented all the good that was to happen by committing a wrongful act herself. Is that clear? Because the, the play ends, the story ends in a kind of wonder. The children, it, it's really like the wife of bath tale with a beautiful woman appearing, you know, when the, when the knight makes his choice, suddenly she's turned into... When Griselda comes out of her, when she comes out to consciousness, think about that. She lapses into darkness. She loses when she comes to, she beholds a wonder. It's as if she's seen her children for the first time. So, in one sense, Chaucer's reinforcing the importance of faith in our lives. How important they are to trust that God is going to, you know, in an extraordinary way. Keep that in mind when you think about Griselda and then look at Helen. One's looking back to a Christian Middle Ages, one's looking forward to a modern world. It's our world. What do we learn by putting these two women together? Okay, that's where we're going. Any questions or? I had a question from last week, but it's not this, so somebody slightly different. Yeah, go ahead, Sue. Well, we talk about the importance of words, but actually when I was in college, I took a course, a linguistics course in Middle English. And it was hysterical. But I am amazed at the talent it takes to take the language in which Chaucer wrote and translate it to make it so read readable now in modern English. You mean in our translation? Yeah. 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 And, and I don't know the background of all translations. But, but to have the cadence and the rhyme maintained in the transition of language is... Extraordinary. Yeah. Yes, for yeah, sure. So I'm not, I mean, I honor Chaucer in the way he wrote, but I also honor whoever translated this, because I can remember having a hysterical conversation after the final in that class. We all had a maid and her father and a, and a suitor, but the verbs, we had screwed up so much, we had five or six different stories about what happened. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and so when I think about the effort it took, and I suppose for Shakespeare... Uh, less, yep. but still some. Yep. It's it's really amazing. Is there a definitive person, the best person in that translation? I mean, is there somebody in literature in in the linguistics area that has done the the premier work on translating Chaucer to modern English? I can't answer that. Seen? All I know, I mean, I. It's Neville Coghill. I, I think, the, I mean, I'm not doing anything but saying what you are, that I think the work he did is extraordinary. Yeah, okay. Because, I, because that's not as easy in modern English. And, and moreover, he's, he, I mean, this is extraordinary. He's got to try to keep Chaucer's sense yes. and spirit yes. and spirit and still rhyme. And, well, and he does it. Rhyming, but there's the cadence to, yeah. The, yeah. to the lines. There's yeah. the, so a lot of he changes a lot of words. I mean, if you read the original, he... he, he 
he's playing loose. He's not, he's not keep, no. but, but he's so faithful to what Chaucer does. Just here, give me, a, I'll give you an example. It's a contract. Dorothy Sayers, who I think has written the best notes on Dante's Commedia, if you get her the, the Penguin volumes, three, three, the Inferno, the Purgatory, the, she translated it into English. And she tried to use English rhymes. She tries to say it with a tercet form, you know. It, it, it just killed her verse. It, she's English. Um, there's more rhymes in Italian. It's a language that gives itself to rhyming. English is less so. It made her verse so stilted, so stiff, so formal, and it couldn't be more different from... So the work of translation is extremely hard, particularly if you try to keep the rhyme scheme. Lots of, most of the poets, or most of the translators who do these things don't try to stay to the rhyme scheme because it's so hard. This guy was just masterful. Because it's fun to read. I mean, you can hear that. It really is a good language. It's not formal or stiff or... Um, it's an amazing job. You know, one, one of the reasons we did the Latimer for Homer is because he's not, he, he's staying close to the hexameter line, but it's just a really good translation. And you can read lots of translations that, in fact, I, one guy had a 19th century translation that was just deadly. He was reading that, and I said, you don't want to read that, and, he, and I gave him the Latimer. He said, holy cow, now I can read it. I mean, it was just so hard to read it before. It's so hard to do a translation. Anyway, I appreciate it. So, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, hmm? We didn't have many math majors today. Bob. We didn't have many math majors in my middle school class. <laughs> <laughs> Strangely. Yeah, right. Yeah, definitely. Boy, modern linguistics couldn't be farther away from poetry, you know? Yes, and then we'll we'll end with after that we'll do Anthony and Cleopatra. The latest is is a woman in the Wall Street Journal reporter saying that Shakespeare is in the gallery. That's especially true. I tried to get something in. I, I go too fast because there are times when I want to pick on you. Sometimes I get so involved that I forget the point. There's no reason to take Say to the, I mean, it's just sad. Marriages are. This is an age that 
It's right. so hard for Americans, yes, I believe. So it's just so hard. But, that's a, but, but the tradition but behind it is better or worse. The, oh, which okay. means mass will be after that. And I think in our age, because it's so rationalistic, that even if people speak those words, when the worst comes, yeah, well, no, I tried to, I they tried see to, the yeah. worst as a reason for getting out of the marriage, but it's, you know, and that's the age we're in. Yeah. In Chaucer's yeah. age, that yeah, wasn't but, quite yeah. the same way, so that implied well, adulterers is a better yeah, or worse. Um, I mean, he's not a, you don't want a man to do that. It's right. just awful. But I think the focus of the story for Chaucer, at least one of the things I want to underline here, is that there's something extraordinary in women. No, no, Our notions of equality of sex to me are such We're different, men and women, and men who don't grow in humility are sad. But at least here, they're closer to Mary, I believe. Chaucer sees something in women. Six dollars. I don't It's so clear. You don't want ten pennies. Yeah. With greater humility. You don't want it all. And there's a power. God works for that. That works. Got it. And thank you. People don't believe in God today are going to see that. People who want power aren't going to see it. You don't even get here. It's not that cold. Anyway. No, I think you're right. Chaucer's going to say it. Because because otherwise you're sort of leaving your all women are going to leave themselves open to men who are going to be spending their lives testing them. It's um, <laughs> like a robot. Okay, so this is just a Did you enjoy all these things? I did. 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 All's well? All's well. So I've got like a few more stories. Probably not. We'll probably go to the same point. You don't have to read that. I know. I wanted to do it on my own. Oh, good for you. Yeah. Good for you. You enjoyed it. I did. Oh, you know, as much as I could, but yeah. You do. Stop saying that. God's sake. God. All right. Well, have a good week. Thank you. Thank you. See you next week.